When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brady McCartney, your host today. I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Robin Veldman, Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at Texas A&M University, to discuss her recent book, The Gospel of Climate Skepticism, Why Evangelical Christians Oppose Action on Climate Change, published by University of California Press. Dr. Veldman, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Oh, thank you. Um, So we are speaking on September 10th, uh, 2021, uh, as the Southeast and Northeast contend with the aftermath of Hurricane Ida, uh, and large fires continue to burn throughout the Western United States. Um, Climate events, I would argue, that are clearly impacted by humans and human actions, Um, This seems like an appropriate time to discuss your book on how and why uh, evangelical Christians in the U.S. have come to express um, climate change skepticism. Obviously, there are varying attitudes, and I'm sure you will go into that. Um, But to start, um, if you could just tell us a bit about yourself um, and how you became interested in this topic. Sure. Um, So I am, uh, gosh, where to start? Um, I was an environmental studies major. So I've been interested in environmental issues for a long time. Uh, And I grew up in Southern California. So you just see a lot of drought and also urbanization, suburbanization, you know, that I think that kind of stuff was always on my mind. So that's how I got onto the environmental side of things. Um, And the way that I ended up started, ended up studying evangelicals was a, a little almost unintentional that I ended up, um, on that topic. I was, I did my master's thesis on environmental apocalypticism. And, uh, as I was reading, you know, the many apocalyptic things that environmentalists have said, I, I, other people I would talk to would say, Oh, you, you know, what about the Christian, you know, evangelical Christians, they're the ones who are really apocalyptic and you should, look at their environmental attitudes. Uh, and also around that time, there was a, a news story that had kind of gotten some traction or relatively recently um, from Bill Moyers had given a speech where he claimed that the uh, Bush administration's, that George W. Bush's uh, climate policy, which if you going back, uh, it feels like a long time ago now, um, but going back to that era, he was, you know, w- accused of a sort of editing um, climate reports and just not being on board with the fact that climate change is caused by human activities. And, um, and so Bill Moyers had given this speech uh, that was fairly widely circulated on the internet of uh, suggesting that he was able to do so because he had so many fundamentalist Christian supporters who didn't care if the earth burned up because they thought it was going to anyway, because of the rapture. And so that became kind of my guiding inspiration, just as somebody who's 
personally always been interested in the ends of things that I don't, you know, some of us just end up being fascinated with that. So um, that was what drew me over to the evangelical Christian side of things. Sure. And, and just to, to note um, George W. Bush, um, while he was raised, I think in sort of a more sort of mainline Protestant uh, tradition uh, did have an evangelical experience and uh, became an evangelical Christian. Um, so uh, related uh, at the center of your book are um, what you call traditionalist evangelicals. Um, so who are traditional evangelicals and how do they differ from other evangelicals? Yeah. Um, so with evangelicals, there's so much debate about who is an evangelical and how do you define evangelicalism and how do you identify them in research? And, uh, there, you know, most, I didn't realize this before I started my research and most, you know, average people don't, but there aren't really a set of agreed upon criteria for who is an evangelical. And so when I did my research, I used, um, I looked at denominations that are considered to be evangelical and there's a whole rationale for why certain denominations are considered evangelical and others aren't. Um, but since I wanted to go and talk to people in churches, they had to be, uh, you know, I, I, it, I had to go by the, what the church affiliated with rather than the other approach, which is you ask people to self-identify, you know, do you um, see yourself as evangelical or have you had a born again experience? Um, so anyway, I went with a, a denominational approach. And so that includes denominations like the Southern Baptist Convention. It includes Lutherans, but the Missouri Synod, not all Lutherans. There's other Lutherans that are not evangelical. Um, and so I thought of my study, and this all took place in Georgia, as being on evangelicals, sort of generally, right? Not all evangelicals, obviously, because I was just working in in Georgia, but I was trying to get a segment across different um, different denominations within, you know, where I was working in Georgia. And then at the end of my research, I kind of went back and I'd collected demographic information about everyone who participated in my focus groups, asking, you know, their age and their views on the Bible and um, politics. And I started realizing, oh, okay, these are not evangelicalism, you know, evangelicals writ large. They're actually uh, sort of what some people have maybe called the the core of the Christian right, or, a, you know, this other, the terminology I used was traditionalist evangelical. Um, and that comes from John C. Green, who's a political scientist. He's identified this group within you know, the broader survey research that shows, okay, so there's like, you know, maybe a quarter to a third of Americans self-identify as evangelical, but then you can divide them up further and say there's, you know, various different kinds. And traditionalists are evangelicals who uh, hope to restore Christianity's place in public life and culture. And so I kind of think of them as the lay people who are associated with the political movement known as the Christian right. Um, when I was doing my field research, I, I, I didn't quite realize that these individuals were, um, you know, they were far to the right politically. They were, I think I, I don't have the exact statistic in front of me, but I think they were about 80% Republican, which is actually quite a bit higher than evangelicals overall. And um, they were very theologically conservative as well. And so that 
place them within the conservative end of the spectrum. And I wanted to be clear in my book that I wasn't talking about all evangelicals, um, but I think that I had a window into the traditionalist core of evangelicals. And this also happens to be the group where I think you see the most overlap between faith and climate change skepticism. Sure. And and I think you hopefully point out um, a number of distinctions in the book. Um, Obviously, there are evangelicals um, who are connected, as you say, to the Christian right. And somebody like President Jimmy Carter um, was very sort of vocal and his his, um, evangelical approach and obviously uh, ran as a Democrat. Um, Some would say he was quite liberal. (laughs) Um, So evangelical, obviously, is a term um, that has a fair amount of baggage at this point, but is does not sort of always mean the same thing in every context. Um, Yeah. And a lot of people confuse the Christian right for uh, use that term as if it's interchangeable with evangelical. And it's, it's really not the Christian right is a, a group, a loose network of organizations that consolidated with the goal of attaching evangelicalism to a sort of partisan commitment. Um, So yeah, it's just a subset of the broader evangelical tradition. Right. And, and as I was reading this book, um, it was hard not to uh, think about um, the last four years, obviously, with the Trump administration and, uh, for example, what we saw on, say, January 6th, uh, 2021 mm-hmm. and the insurrection, because um, obviously that was, that was an event in which the Christian right was certainly present. Um, but as you started to scratch the surface, it um, seemed like some evangelicals uh, may have been involved as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess sort of connecting sort of traditional evangelicals and the Christian right. Um, so so how do these entities, I realize they're not sort of a one-to-one, but how do they sort of advocate for policies um, that perpetuate climate skepticism or sort of support interests um, that are aligned with climate skepticism or maybe climate inaction? Um, well, I mean, I started out doing, talking to people in, in the field like I mentioned in focus groups and participant observation, which means just going to churches and stuff. So I didn't initially start out looking at the level of policy because at the, at the time when I was starting, the big question was, well, what do people in the pews think? And we didn't really know there were some surveys, but we didn't have much detail. And so that was my, in fact, there had been all of the focus up until the point when I started had been on elites within evangelical circles, and in particular on evangelical environmentalists, um, who had been making some headway in the early 2000s, in pushing for stewardship of the environment, and also pushing for eventually pushing for climate action. Um, and then there was some opposition that emerged in response to that. So most of this, the work that had been done was looking at the debate within evangelical elites over climate action. And so I started out, you know, do want to do the opposite and just saying, okay, well, is this resonating at the grassroots level? Uh, and th- that was my kind of overarching question, even though I, in particular, I was really interested in, in time beliefs and beliefs about the rapture and whether that had some kind of impact on how they were thinking about climate change. Um, so, so to answer your question that actually, for me, it feels a little almost backwards because that's what I came to at the end of my research when I, um, started in fact, looking at the extent to which the Christian right leaders in the Christian right, 
um, had been involved in promoting, I call it promoting climate skepticism on their radio and television programs. But I only came to that because I saw how much people that I talked to were saying the same things over and over again. And I compared it to what other qualitative researchers in other parts of the country were hearing. And then I started looking online and realized that, oh, well, what they're saying is what's actually being said on the air, on the radio as well, in Christian radio. And then I started asking more questions about, well, okay, is that where they're getting it from then? Like, where do these ideas come from? And so that, yeah, so I, you can find some policy documents put out by different Christian right organizations uh, that generally, I mean, I'm thinking of like the Family Research Council has advocated, they um, don't believe that the, or at least, you know, going back to 2008, were opposed to uh, climate policy being enacted at the um, national level and did not think climate change was a real problem or a serious problem. Um, so that's about as far as I get into it policy-wise, basically. <laughs> There's some more nuance, but generally they're opposed to action uh, in the period that I studied, which went up to 2015. Sure. Um, so I'm wondering, uh, you sort of touched on it, but um, could you describe the role that the sort of, I think your your terminology is sort of the evangelical mass media, like what role they played um, and how sort of the Christian right through uh, these mass media channels um, promoted both sort of secular and religious climate skepticism? Yeah. Um, So, you know, everybody is probably familiar with the evangelical mass media just from flipping through radio stations when you're driving along, especially in rural areas, you can almost always get a Christian station. And if you listen for long enough, you'll run into these shows that are called, it's called like a news talk genre show. Uh, and they're usually have some tagline about being news from a Christian perspective. So there are all these news programs. Some of them are delivering the news of particular interest to Christians, but others have a kind of Christian take on the news. So it's somewhat parallel to a Rush Limbaugh kind of, you know, Hannity's concert, you know, common commenting on the news, but from a particular perspective, in this case, from a Christian perspective. So um, radio is very important in the radio and television, I would say are very important in the evangelical world because there's no, um, hierarchy that dictates that, um, that sort of unites it into one, uh, coherent organization, right? Because all evangelical denominations, um, they may be part of larger bodies, but they're relatively independent. And there's many different denominations, like I mentioned before, you know, Southern Baptists and you know, Lutherans and Presbyterians. I, there are many different denominations that are part of evangelical subculture. So you have um, radio and television, and now there's a lot on social media, which I didn't study, but I think it's really influential, that create the context that kind of um, provides a coherent evangelical subculture. And as I am not evangelical and and didn't grow up in this world, so I wasn't particularly familiar with it, but reading through studies that people in in other fields in particular, like in communication have done on, on evangelical media, it's just really impressive what a large reach it has and, and the extent to which pastors listen to Christian radio to kind of understand politics of the day. And so, um, 
what I learned eventually as I started, the way it all happened was a little bit by chance. I, I didn't go straight from like, oh, I wonder why everyone is telling me this one you know, God controls the weather. <laughs> that was like one of the most common comments I got and a comment that a lot of other people have found. Uh, and so I didn't go straight from there to wondering, oh, who has talked about this on the radio? But I did look at um, some documents that have been put out by the Cornwall Alliance, which is an event, the main evangelical climate skeptic organization. And they have, they're sort of a think tank advocacy, you know, slash advocacy organization. And they've been the main public face of evangelical climate skepticism. And as part of their media outreach, they put together these documents or declarations that they release every so often, like an evangelical declaration on global warming, which oppose generally they're created in order to, to oppose whatever evangelical environmentalists have been doing. And so I started to look at who was signing these documents. And then I pretty quickly realized, oh, it's not just, you know, any evangelical. A lot of them are these big figures in the Christian right, which at this point in my research, I still was not fully understanding the internal dynamics of the evangelical world, kind of how, how power works. Um, and, but event, you know, I started noticing, okay, there's a certain kind of evangelical who's involved in these organizations. And then I, I said, I wondered if they're signing declarations, you know, what else are they doing? Are they saying anything else about climate change? Can I kind of um, narrow down or pin down more precisely what they're saying about climate change aside from signing these declarations? Um, And so I started looking into people. Uh, I can't remember the first person I looked into, but I did Uh, It might have been Chuck Colson um, because he was one of the biggest names that was associated with the Cornwall Alliance. And he's a really was a really well-known and respected figure in the evangelical world. He's um, created prison fellowship ministries and just has been he's just very well, you know, he's he's well known in the political sphere, but also respected as a religious leader. And uh, uh I went to his website and I just entered in global warming and climate change on uh, his radio archives, or it might have been just on the website overall. And and I was like, oh, there's a lot of stuff here. You know, I realized that he had been talking about it quite a bit, and I was really surprised. And so eventually, the doing this kind of process over and over again with different people, especially the big name people. And the big name people generally are have big names because they have big media ministries, because um, that's one way that you can build influence within the evangelical world. And I realized that that pattern repeated itself. It wasn't just Colson, but it was also uh, D. James Kennedy, who's uh, a number of these figures sort of have passed on, but um, were involved with promoting climate skepticism at some point. And uh, I looked at Pat Robertson and James Dobson and just started to realize that they, it's not like they were being silent on this issue of climate change. You know, that had been my assumption because a lot of us thought, you know, we thought of it as not really central to the at least core agenda of politically conservative evangelicals associated with the Christian right. They're more 
focused on religious liberty and sexual morality and those kinds of issues. So I sort of didn't, I thought they were just signing declarations and, you know, grumbling angrily in the background. And I didn't really expect that they were going to be that involved um, in talking about climate change. But then as I looked through and I started more systematically searching the archives of their radio programs, which go out to millions of people over the country, some of them like Chuck Colson had his program airs on 1200 stations and has an, uh, a listening weekly listening audience of uh, about 8 million, which is one of the, the higher ones. Um, but yeah, so I just started realizing that they were actually talking about climate change quite a bit and they were, I, I couldn't find any instances except for Pat Robertson had one story about Catherine Hayhoe um, really almost no instances where they were talking about it as a real problem or a serious problem or something Christians sh- should be concerned about. And more often, particularly on the radio programs, they were very just skeptical and derisive and dismissive and mocking and, and you know, just making fun of anybody who would think it was a serious issue. And so that's, you know, how I started thinking, okay, there's something going on in, in evangelical mass media, which is part of this picture. And at the, at the time, we, we, no one was really talking about, I mean, media effects are very hard to pin down. So that's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, it's not the first place you start when you're trying to understand the attitudes of a particular social group. Um, just because it's so complicated to know whether somebody goes to the media because they already have that view or whether they get it from listening to that media source. Uh, but, but yeah, no, that just kind of, uh, the more I listened, the more I became convinced that this was at least playing a role in making Christians think that evangelical Christians think that skepticism was the more biblical position to hold on climate change, which matters quite a bit to evangelicals to be, seen as holding the biblical position is to be seen as holding the right position. Right. Um, so I, I think your, your previous comments just pointed out um, that you're careful <laughs> to point out um, that the evangelical community in the U S is vast. Um, there are many differing climate and environmental views. Um, obviously you, you referenced Catherine Hayhoe, who is both an atmospheric you know, scientist as well as, at least last I checked, an evangelical Christian. Um, so, uh, like, why why do you think um, many of your interviewees um, considered climate change? I, I, I can't remember the exact terminology, but it came across as sort of climate change as a sort of secular hoax. Um, and, and how do you think they came to that conclusion? Um, and sort of connected to that, um, sort of, put forth the idea that um, some evangelicals that you studied seemed to think that sort of government was almost trying to replace God as sort of the major institution um, in their lives. So I'm wondering if, you know, if you could sort of talk us through how climate change became to be seen in sort of this sort of secular light. Yeah. Yeah. Um, good question. And thanks for giving the background on Catherine Hayhoe. Um, so uh, I, I really like the point you were making at the beginning, just that there is so much diversity in evangelical views. And actually, one of the things that I hope my book would do, and I don't, <laughs> I hope it does this, I don't know if it does, but is because I do focus on skeptics, but um, 
it also made me really question these tribal assumptions that we tend to have about people that, oh, I know what you think just because I know who you are. Um, and so I, I hope that I hope that that comes through in the end. Um, so the people that I talked to in Georgia were the evangelicals I talked to were largely skeptical, but you know, the, it, overall evangelicals are always more skeptical than Amer- in all the surveys I've looked at, they always come out as more skeptical, but it's not like a hundred percent or anything like that. It's just, they have much higher levels. So that was always my question is why are the levels higher? Not, you know, they all think this or anything like that. Um, and so among the people I talked to, um, I kind of talked about it as there being a couple uh, sort of secular and religious uh, ways of talking about it dovetailing together. So when people would talk about climate change, they would mention, they'd bring up climate gate, this conspiracy theory that climate scientists were manipulating the data, which was based on a data breach, um, some emails that were stolen from, from scientists in the UK, maybe Exeter. Uh, and, and sort of in, it was later determined that really they did nothing wrong, but it was played up a lot in conservative media as if there was something fishy going on. And, and so the kinds of things people said, when I talked to them, we talked about climate change, those kind of And I asked, you know, why, you know, what do you think about climate change? And, you know, what are your reasons for thinking this and that? And, and you would just hear all of these, um, what could be included on the list of, you know, here's the list of misinformation or, or, you know, skeptical talking points about climate change. If you go to skeptical science, which keeps a list of the most used myths on climate change, everything that is on that list (laughs) is stuff that I heard. Um, So yeah, and like climate scientists are in it for the money. And Al Gore is, you know, he's investing in solar panels. And so he's trying to scare us into investing in his companies. So all these kind of um, reasons for not believing that the climate is really changing and for turning the question around and saying, well, why are they trying to hoodwink us? And that is so, and so I did hear a lot of what you, you know, non-religious reasons for climate skepticism, but they also were articulated really in the same breath as religious reasons for climate skepticism. And that's where I got, you know, my ears perked up obviously as a religious studies scholar. Um, And I think the, the phrase that I kept coming back to over and over again, and I remember being in my in-laws basement, I had all of all of my transcripts laid out, you know, it's like hundreds of pages and all these flags and note cards and just trying to figure, okay, what is the big picture here? And coming back to this term, God's in, t- in control, this, it was a repeated narrative that I heard um, or phrase that I heard across evangelical focus groups. And it's, as I mentioned, it's one that other researchers have encountered as well. And the idea is just, oh, well, humans can't be causing global warming because God controls the weather. Uh, So it was a way of dismissing the fact that climate change was happening or that it was a serious problem. You you could also use it to say, oh, well, we're not going to worry about it because that's God's domain. And um, and when people would talk a little bit more about it, you would find that it, it was kind of connected to this idea that 
cli- climate scientists are alarmists. They're trying to make us afraid. Why are they trying to make us afraid? They're trying to make us afraid so that they can kind of hustle us into their secular worldview. Um, and so there was this kind of um, feeling that climate change was a, I call it a, or they viewed it as a secular eschatology and eschatology is of uh, study, the study of the end times. Um, so in evangelical teachings, a lot, you know, they have particular beliefs about what the Bible says will happen in the end times. And so what they, when they heard climate change and, you know, the world's going to end, they heard the echo of, it sounds, you know, like a secular replacement for teachings that I've already read in the Bible. And so they saw it as this kind of threat as an intended replacement for, for Christian teachings. And they linked it, some of my informants linked it to, you know, it was just like, you know, evolution, which is um, trying to, you know, replace Christian teachings about origins. Now climate change is another threat that's coming from the secular world that's trying to replace our teachings about the end times. So, and this wasn't everybody, but it was a, a consistent enough theme that I started realizing you know, if I'm going to try to understand what role religion plays in this, then that is probably at least a significant piece of the puzzle. Um, and I ended up real—I ended up seeing this view as part of a broader historically, historically, uh, historical mentality or um, viewpoint that has emerged within evangelical Christianity over time. And uh, which I, I draw on the work of uh, Christian Smith, who's a sociologist, and he's written a book or a, the classic book about evangelicalism and how it has managed to persist in America instead of fading away. Um, as had been predicted would happen, there was a time when social scientists thought that you know countries would all secularize, but the you know the puzzle was why they didn't. And, and so his argument was that in the United States, evangelicals were not, um, you know, fading away in the harsh light of secularism because they were um, really fighting back. They had this embattled mentality. They were pushing back against the secular world. And I saw that angry tone when they were talking about climate change and this sense that there was a hostile world that was trying to push them around, telling them to take the Bible out of public schools, you know, um, saying you couldn't pray in schools, all of, you know, there's this whole history of discontent that evangelicals have had with the way that the country has gone. And I mean, what I saw in the focus groups was that that was being kind of connected to climate change so that they were seeing climate change as part of this what they saw as a decades long campaign on behalf of secularists to push Christianity from the public sphere. Um, and so, you know, religion was not, people wouldn't all give religious reasons for, you know, if you ask them, them why they're skeptical of, skeptical of climate change, that's not their top answer all the time or really most of the time, but it was kind of an underlying theme. Um, and so I, I saw that as being the most potent religious connection, not really, thinking about it in terms of the embattled mentality being a particular belief system, but it being a particular culture and a, some 
a, a shared belief or worldview that um, or subculture that evangelicals participated in, and that it was the subculture that was encouraging this unusual, to me at least, take on climate change. Right. I, I thought one of the, the most interesting parts of the book um, was your analysis of this uh, sense of embattlement um, with secular culture felt by evangelicals. Um, it felt like uh, it had some resonance with what we saw in sort of the rise of President Trump and sort of the collective support he received and sort of this this culture of embattlement. Um, so uh, you get into sort of this idea that uh, traditionally evangelical, traditionalist evangelicals and maybe evangelicals more broadly um, feel like there's sort of a diminishment of their cultural and political power. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm wondering if if you could talk about um, sort of why there was sort of this history of perceived marginalization, um, given the fact that sort of Protestants um, over the history of this country, at least, have often uh, been in positions of power <laughs> over um, other religions. Obviously, white Protestants in particular have had a lot of cultural, political power, religious power, and yet there is this sense of embattlement and marginalization and sort of diminishment and sort of how you thought about that in relation to um, climate change and sort of this secular um, or secularization of the U.S. that um, they connected to climate change. Yeah. So, uh, um, I mean, if you go and look up surveys on evangelicals, the uh, large numbers of them, I'm not good at remembering actual numbers. I don't want to make up a figure, but large numbers of them believe that Christians are persecuted. Uh, And that was a term that came up in my research as well, that people talked about themselves as being persecuted. That was one of the challenges they they felt they faced in society. And looking at it from a more objective standpoint, I would say what's happened is that they are no longer privileged and they interpret that loss of privilege as persecution. Uh, it used to be, as you mentioned, and you're so right that, you know, this is a historically Protestant nation and Protestants have been favored quite heavily. And as, especially in the latter half of the 20th century, as the courts started um, it, like in the 1950s and 60s, when they took the Bible out of public schools and they, you know, took school prayer out, that was in order to not have the government support a particular religious tradition. Um, but in the South, it had been very common uh, uh, to, and I this may have been common elsewhere, I just know I've read it about the South, that it had been common to read the Bible in public schools. So it was a push for a cultural change that was unwelcome. And that has been, I would say, cleverly reframed it, you know, by people in the Christian right as persecution. And I and, and um, so the sense of embattlement is, I think, rooted in this attempt to reclaim the position or retain the position of privilege that evangelicals or maybe Protestants more generally have had. They're, they're, you know, mainline Protestants also benefited from the privilege that all Protestants had. But I think evangelicals have been a lot more a uh, lot stronger on pushing back against that disestablishment that happened in the second half of the 20th century. Um, so that's kind of the the history of it. I think that when, and, and the 
Christian right, when they retell the history of their movement, those are the the events that they cite as inspiring them to, you know, come back out and try to reclaim their place in public life. But there is debate uh, among historians in particular about whether that's a genuine and accurate reflection of what drove them into politics. There are other forces, in particular, the threat of IRS investigation of the these segregated Christian academies that may have played a role or that, you know, has been argued, in fact, was one of the precipitating factors, perhaps more directly in their political involvement. Right. Um, yes, that that history, I think, is is in the background of this book throughout sort of the rise of uh, evangelical sort of politics in a really uh, impactful way, at least in U.S. politics. Um Sort of transitioning a little bit. Um, so you mentioned the Evangelical Climate Initiative. Again, I, I don't want uh, listeners to leave this interview and have a sense that your book doesn't sort of cover uh, the evangelical community broadly with sort of a variety of, of views included. Um, but could you talk a little bit about the Evangelical Climate Initiative and sort of what role it played uh, or is continuing to play uh, in this story or at least its legacy? Yeah, Um So, and yeah, my book focuses on climate skepticism, but part of that story is climate activism, which there's been uh, quite a bit of among evangelicals. And there has been sort of an ebb and flow in terms of the extent to which the news, secular news media covers these activities. So I, you know, you never know how much a non-evangelical will have ever heard about any of this activism. Um, But the Evangelical Climate Initiative was put together, um, at the behest of this organization called the Evangelical Environmental Network. Uh, and they had been advocating Christian environmental stewardship for over a decade at that point, And they decided it was time to broach the issue of climate change. They felt like, you know, it was a place where their witness was needed in society and it was just the moment to do it. So they started putting together this initiative, which, was a statement from that would be signed by prominent evangelical leaders saying, you know, this problem is real, it's serious, now is the time to act. And uh, it started coming together, I believe, in, I mean, so there were various stages where the groundwork was being laid. Uh, and Jim Ball, who was the uh, executive director of the EEN at this time, was a big proponent of of this um initiative. Uh, and it was really generated a lot of excitement there were, you know, as they started to talk about it and work on it and get signatories, um, the, the goal was to kind of come out with a big, uh, splashy statement that would then, you know, attract attention and trickle down to the, the lay people at a, at a critical time, potentially when, um, you know, so that when there was, when leadership, this was, um, sorry, I'm like confusing the timeline a little bit, but um, just to be clear, this whole thing started, you know, maybe around 2004. And when the Evangelical Climate Initiative officially launched was in February of 2006. Uh, And so, you know, this is into the second term of George W. Bush and two years away from the next election. And so it's, it's an important window because if the, um, parties were to change. Basically there's, there's some, some play in the political scene at that point, right? Like 
less likely that Republicans are going to change their mind. But if you have a Democrat in office, you know, like Obama was saying he wanted to do something on climate change, then evangelical voices adding to the calls for climate action might be able to make a difference. So there was a lot of excitement about their efforts. And when it was announced, you know, it was, um, I think they had full page ads in the New York Times and in Christianity Today, which is the flagship uh, magazine of the evangelical world founded by Billy Graham, I think. Um, and, and so it, it, it did, and there were stories on NPR about it and there was just, you know, there was a lot of news coverage of this issue and it was really exciting. Uh, and so, but the way I talk about this in the book is mainly uh, because there is a whole book about that development. It's called between God and green by Catherine Wilkinson. It's really wonderful. And I found it to be a really useful resource. So she wrote a book about this, you know, this emerging, um, verbal of excitement over pushing for Christian environmental stewardship and including climate justice, climate action within that framework. And there, you know, they, the, the ECI, the evangelical climate initiative, uh, the folks behind that were able to get a number of really prominent signatories uh, to join uh, like mega church pastors, for example, to lend their name to this initiative and so it was actually really surprising. And that's one of the reasons it got so much news coverage because there were um, people weren't, it's just like, wait, what the, you know, evangelicals, all you ever hear about is their support for conservative politics. And now they care about climate change. So there was a, a, quite a bit of um, just interest in this initiative because it was so surprising. Um, and, but the way I talk about it in the book is how it eventually inspired a backlash. It was the fact that it was so seemingly successful, or at least that it was, was able to reach, uh, or to get so much, so many, so much media attention was, um, one of the reasons that, that individuals in the Christian right, um, ended up having an interest in responding or having some kind of, um, or, or trying to, um, push back against the message that the evangelical agenda was broadening. Absolutely. Um, so you, you like connected. You d- you discuss the ways in which like political attitudes are transmitted by church leaders. Obviously, the ECI is sort of one example, but I think in your book, the backlash is maybe a more prominent uh, theme. Yeah. Um, so I, I think you make it clear that this was not inevitable. But at, like, how did denying climate change become part of the socially accepted? like traditionalist evangelical identity, because I think that's sort of the identity piece is maybe uh, the, the, the piece I'm left thinking about because identity um, is, is a very different thing to contend with than sort of changing a political view. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the groundwork, that's a good question. I think a lot of the groundwork had really been laid in the decades previous. And I, I tried to articulate this in the book, but I um, just as evangelicals, had be, had come to associate their identity with political conservatism over time that laid the groundwork for them wanting to adopt the conservative position on climate change, which at that point and kind of still is climate skepticism. So you can't ignore the political backdrop. Um, and I do think it's, it's really important to keep in mind. Um, I don't want to, you know, if you talk, start talking about religion, then it, and I actually push back against the idea that this is, just a side effect of politics, because I think it has a lot to do with religious people getting involved in politics, which makes it one of both. 
Um, but yeah, but I just, I don't want to, to make the argument that, that politics on the other hand doesn't matter because it, but I see in a, the historical um, lead up to that is what's important about politics that because it takes decades and decades for a group of people as large and diverse as evangelicals to kind of develop this sense of natural affinity with a political party. It wasn't automatic. And that's one of the things that's so fascinating when you start going into that research about the emergence of the Christian right and how, you know, early evangelical leaders were kind of, you know, okay with Roe v. Wade. And um, so there's just a lot that has changed over time. And people forget today because, you know, everybody forgets history in this country. We're all totally myopic. Um, But all of that stuff took a lot of effort to accomplish. And, you know, nevertheless, over time, and I draw on Lydia Bean, who has a really, I think, great book on the politics of evangelical identity, where she shows that evangelicals in America see political conservatism as part of their identity in a way that evangelicals in Canada do not. So it's a very American thing to have integrated your theological worldview and, you know, religious culture with a political culture, but nevertheless, that is what has happened. So, you know, that in, in the long view, that's, that history is really critical. And I don't think we would have the phenomenon of evangelical climate skepticism to the degree we do today, if we didn't have the partisan realignment that occurred, you know, from 1980 on as evangelicals migrated into the Republican party. Nevertheless, I think that there was a pretty critical role that leaders in the Christian right played in. Um, it's hard to pin down the extent to which they may have actually changed minds or tipped the scales on this issue. But when they began what I call a campaign, and it's at least loosely organized, I am not certain how well organized it was because that's not public information. But um, when they started this campaign to present skepticism as the more biblical position on climate change, they um, needed to do so in order to push back against the um, push back against what was happening with the ECI, um, and in part they needed to do so because of their allies in the Republican Party. So there's when you're the f- fact that evangelical leaders have kind of brokered this. Um, it starts to sound, <laughs> whenever, you, whenever you talk about this part of politics, you're like, really, can it be this way? But it is like, it's very transactional that um, evangelicals are members of this Republican coalition. And they're so part of their job as, uh, you know, as members of this coalition is to support other members of the coalition. And um, so m- there are economic conservatives, libertarians, free market fundamentalists who oppose action on climate change for ideological reasons. Some of them have material reasons in the sense that they have investments in, in um, fo- the fossil fuel industry. Um, but when the um, Evangelical Climate Initiative looked like it was going to be successful because it was getting all this news coverage, they put pressure um, on the evangelical leaders in the Christian right that they were close with. This is, I'm drawing in particular on more, a different um, article that Lydia Bean wrote um, called spreading the gospel of climate change. Uh, And um, so basically it was the the leaders in the Christian right ended up being kind of um, 
I'm not sure if they would have, again, gotten involved in this fight if it hadn't been for the fact that they were part of this Republican coalition and that put them under pressure to get involved in an issue that is not core to their agenda and is not naturally something that evangelicals were caring much about. If you go back 20 or 30 years, the bigger complaint was that they weren't talking about environmental issues at all, that it just wasn't on the radar, you know, because that was not a central concern of theirs. Um, And that's also a little bit of a myth. And there's some really good historical work coming out showing just the ways in which leaders in the Christian right had really evolved over time in terms of their environmental attitudes. Um, But really the bigger problem was the lack of talking about environmental issues, not that they were, you know, pushing too hard on anti-environmentalism. So um, nevertheless, they got sucked into the fight uh, because of the threat that it posed to their coalition partners in the in the Republican party. So yeah, it wasn't, I don't think it's natural at all. I think um, it's, there are respected theologians who evangelical theologians um, who do think that the climate is changing and that it's really important to do something about it. Uh, And nevertheless, those theologians, you know, don't have, radio programs that go out to millions of people. And so there's this huge inequality in terms of who, who has a voice in the evangelical tradition. And because of that inequality, I think that that ended up um, tipping the scales in favor of skepticism. There's a lot of people out there who are not thinking about climate change every day. They're just listening to the radio and you know, you sort of gradually adopt these positions because you just hear enough about it that you're like, yeah, that makes sense. And everybody around me feels that way. And, you know, of course, only, you know, you start adopting the attitudes that have been transmitted to you where you start then thinking like, oh, only liberals care about climate change. And I'm not a liberal because I'm theologically conservative. And so I can't possibly care about climate change. Um, And so, you know, the um, radio campaign ended up and to some extent on television as well, ended up kind of, I think, filtering down in a way because these were influential opinion leaders who were dropping in little, you know, not talking about climate change incessantly, but whenever they did, they were dismissive of it. And so that kind of helped seed this broader attitude um, that isn't really in any substantial way um, theologically (laughs) well connected to, to climate skepticism the theology for it is not all the co- that convincing. And I think that's why they, they relied oftentimes on these really short, brief arguments and uh, sound bites almost about, you know, God's in control, right? Like there's gotta be more theology than that, right? If you really think about it, but you know, if you just have a one minute radio feature, then you can just stop there. And so I, I think that did end up um, infiltrating the airwaves to the extent that most people were like, yeah, huh? Okay. Like, and you know, you're hearing conservative news as well. So it starts to feel like this is the consensus and the correct position because of the way it's getting talked about. Right. So sort of building off of that and maybe there isn't more to say about this, but um, what is the biblical position uh, on climate change? And, you know, what, what is the grounding uh, in the Bible since the Bible is obviously, um, the text, the holy text, uh, for climate skepticism. Like, is there more than than you've represented? You know, surely there's there's something else, but maybe as you're suggesting, there there isn't a ton of theology to back up this position. That it really is more of sort of a supporting a 
you know, members of a coalition that you were politically and culturally aligned with? Um, I mean, I haven't, I don't go digging into theology all that much, actually, since I study culture. Um, but I haven't, in what I've seen, at least the stuff that's been put out by the Christian right, I haven't seen a lot of detailed theology behind it. Even Wayne Grudem, who is a theologian and has preached on climate skepticism, doesn't, <laughs> um, I have to think about how I want to say this, um, I mean, there are theological arguments for climate skepticism. I don't think they're, I think they're only convincing because most people aren't hearing both sides. I think that's how I'd put it. Gotcha. Um, so I, you know, th- this isn't directly connected to your book, but I, I assume you've to some extent kept your finger on the pulse of, of um, sort of this area of research. Like, do you have a sense of how traditionalist evangelicals are thinking about climate change as we see sort of more weather events that are clearly being connected to, um, you know, sort of human driven changes in the climate? Uh, do, do you have your finger on that pulse? Is it something uh, where you, you may be aware of changes in views? Mm. Um, I, I think I'm, I, Uh, I haven't done field research among evangelicals, so I don't have uh, the, you know, kind of the fresh take on it. I think from more recent studies that I've read, you know, climate attitudes are always fluctuating and, you know, there's always the question of what's causing the fluctuation and does weather cause it? Um, The best studies I've seen really seem to suggest that messaging from political elites and how it's framed in the news media is just really, really powerful and shaping. There's always a fluctuation, but that is kind of the underlining, underlying driver, one of the stronger drivers. And I would argue, you know, religious media as well of climate skepticism. Um, so, um, yeah, so I don't know where, uh, exactly it's heading. Um, I do tend to think that, as long as we have this media divide in this country where everyone's kind of consuming media that just reinforces their worldview, we're always going to have a problem with coming to a consensus on what reality is. And that extends beyond climate change. So um, I don't really see natural disasters as being all that convincing to people, even after they've experienced them. Um, you know, I haven't done the research to, you know, maybe I'm wrong. I, I think there are a few, few minds that tend to be changed. Um, but I'm not super optimistic about that at, at present. Um, you know, but it's, it, the social world is so complicated and then you add the natural world on top of that. There's so many things, um, changing all at once. It's a little hard to predict. Um, but I, I do see that there's a, a core of people that I think are, um, perhaps even hardening in their views and becoming even more committed to, um, denying that the climate is changing. And even if they're declining in numbers, they are not ratcheting down the rhetoric. Um, 
And in fact, you know, when I'm saying this, I'm, I'm kind of thinking even rhetoric that's beyond climate change. Climate change is not even a top issue necessarily for a lot of politically and theologically conservative Christians um, who, I, you know, I might use the term Christian nationalist in this context, you know, and think a little broader than the, than the even the evangelical sphere. Um, so, so yeah, I don't really, I don't exactly know where it's heading, but I do think it's, it's that the divisions that we see politically in this country have major implications for climate change. And as long as we see the divides hardening, which I do see them hardening, then, uh, I don't see the, I don't see, you know, the prospects for really good climate policy being enacted. Yes. I, I wasn't meaning, uh, for you to give us all hope after writing this book. <laughs> and don't uh, worry, I won't, because that's yeah. not what I do. <laughs> yes, no, no, I've, I'm always uh, cognizant of what Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, says. You know, he's not here to provide hope. He's here to sort of analyze the world uh, mm. as he sees it. And I would say that's probably a good approach for all scholars and journalists. Um, so as, as we wind down, um, is, is there anything else um, you think that we should touch on about the book? Obviously, you spent a number of years um, wrestling with this material. So is there is there anything that, uh, you know, you still sort of think about uh, that we haven't touched on? Um, I mean, what, I'm, to throw it back to you, was there anything you read and you were like, yeah, no, I just really don't think so? Um, or anything that that should have been addressed and wasn't? Um, well, you, you touched on sort of your idea of the, um, I believe it's the the end times uh, apathy hypothesis. Yeah. <laughs> um, which, you know, c- correct me if I'm wrong, it came across as, you know, there, there's a sense that maybe some evangelicals, some Christians or some, you know, uh, religious folks broadly, if they have the sense that um, there's a second coming um, that is about to occur, uh, that may, maybe, you know, uh, preoccupying oneself with climate issues is, is not actually that important. Um, so you've sort of tested that hypothesis and, and landed, um, I, th- I think in a pretty clear place. Do you want to say something about where you landed on the end times apathy hypothesis? Yeah, sure. I mean, that is one where, um, I actually, that was one of the last, um, I think I even edited that passage when it was in the proof stage, which you're really not supposed to do um, because I, yes. So obviously I went into the field and I was really interested in end time beliefs and whether that actually is responsible for some portion of environmental apathy. And, um, you know, nevertheless, of course, I only talked to a small group of people in Georgia. So this is not, you know, you can't generalize to the whole country, I think I did talk to some people that were extremely theologically conservative. So if you were going to find that end time beliefs generally led to environmental apathy, I think this would have been a good place to look. And I did not find that that was the main driver as, you know, we were talking about before I I thought the evangelical culture of, uh, embattled or, you know, embattled sense of embattlement with secular culture was really the, the stream that was carrying them along in the direction of climate skepticism more than climate or more than end time beliefs. But um, there's, it's, there's so much variation in terms of end time beliefs. And obviously, you know, thinking about what happened in the next few years, there's been a lot of (laughs) growth and prophecy and um, 
you know, QAnon, you know, there's just a lot of other, like that stuff fluctuates quite a bit. And, you know, also going into the, into the past, there was a lot of speculation in the 1960s and 70s related to end times. That was so that was a sort of collective um, drama where many, many evangelicals were kind of brought into what I call the hot millennial worldview, um, where they're, you know, sort of really anticipating that the end might be near. And that was related in particular to the Cold War. So, um, so yeah, I mean, among the people that I that I talked to end time beliefs were not really the main driver of their climate attitudes because the end time believers in fact did believe that the climate was changing um, because they saw it as a sign of the end. And so I, I think end time belief actually kind of can be a little bit difficult to pair with climate skepticism. And so I actually, one piece that I didn't get to put into the book, I have it sitting in a file that i would love to publish it somewhere, but I just don't know. It's not like quite big enough to make an article (laughs) is I had a whole section on um, Tim LaHaye and his, um, he wrote a book called the end series. And it was a a retelling of the left behind series. He's famous because he he wrote the series of books about left behind and they were, you know, um, sold millions of copies. And this is a dramatic, uh, you know, sort of fictional retelling of the Bible story of the end times so he redid that series, but made environmentalists and climate ad- advocates the Antichrist um, character, and and so so you do see actually quite a bit of end times speculation bleeding over into climate discussions, but more often um, it's connected to this idea that establishing. Uh, that addressing climate change will be the pretext for the rise of a one world government, which then, you know, presages the, the antichrist. Um, so that is, um, <clears throat> I'm so sorry. I hope that can be edited out. Um, I, uh, so that's a piece that I didn't really get into, but I, I do still find fascinating. There is um, a lot of, and I actually do think that um, some end time believing Christians had to had to sort of change their views and stop using climate change as an example because of realizing, oh, no, we're supposed to be skeptical that the climate is changing. And in fact, Matthew Sutton, who's a historian of American evangelicalism, pointed out that uh, I think it was in the book Storm Warning by Billy Graham. There was a change between the two. Um, like an older book where he accepted climate or accepted that the climate was changing and saw it as a sign of the end times. And then I think storm warning where it then is, has been like edited in some way to, to be like, no, the climate's not changing. Um, So there is an interesting tension uh, with it. I actually think people who believe that the end is near would love to use climate change as uh, that's the temptation to use it as a, as an indication. Um, But the politics of it are complicated. So you don't see that as much right now. All right. Thank you. Um, do you know what your next project is? Yeah, I'm researching the um, environmental politics of Christian nationalism. And uh, so that is a related topic to some extent, but I started noticing that a lot of climate skepticism, religious climate skepticism, you find it outside of evangelical circles, but it's using sort of similar language and some of which seems to fit into the, the what has been described as Christian nationalism. So I'm hot on the trail trying to 
learn more about what's going on there. Seems like a very, uh, yeah, fruitful area of research. <laughs> fruitful. Uh, yes, or something. <laughs> yeah. The book again is The Gospel of Climate Skepticism, Why Evangelical Christians Oppose Action on Climate Change by my guest, Dr. Robin Veldman published by University of California Press. The book is available now online and in bookstores across the country. Thank you to Dr. Veldman and to you, the listener, for joining me today. This concludes another episode of the New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Until next time.